Before we begin this revelatory interview with Jack Cruz, I just want to say a few things to you. First of all, thank you for listening and thank you for taking time out of your day to tune into the show. Second of all, for those of you who love the show and you have not yet donated, please donate generously. It makes a huge difference. And usually most people that are tuning in can afford 10 to 20 bucks a month minimally to say thank you. This show works on reciprocity. It's available to the public, and we appreciate whatever comes in with regard to donations. We also want to thank all the people who have been donating monthly and one-time large donations. Thank you to our advertisers. We appreciate it. For as little as $200 a month, you could have your new product launch, whether it's a book, a motion picture, a documentary, any type of new service or business Be the focus on its rainmaking time. You can drive specific types of traffic to your products. What's interesting about its rainmaking time is that it's a unique place. There's diversity, there's stewardship, and there is a large reach of subject matter so that everybody can be involved in what they're interested in. You'd be surprised who's listening to its rainmaking time. We have the top people in their field, whether they're known or not, best-selling authors, heads of industry, leaders in every field imaginable, pioneers, and very enterprising people. You should really consider advertising with us. Also, thank you to the people that are posting comments to itsrainmakingtime.com. Thank you to the people that are posting on our YouTube channel, It's Rainmaking Time at YouTube. Also, to It's Rainmaking Time at iTunes. If you can go in there and share how much you love the show, it really helps grow the distribution. Also, thank you to the people that are sharing on LinkedIn and all the social networking groups like Facebook, Google, and other forums. Thank you also to people who are sharing via email and other capacities. We are looking for very high-level people who can transcribe and translate from English to French, Spanish, Dutch, and German. All right, here we go. The show's beginning. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I have to tell you that I want you to stop everything that you're doing. Literally, I want you to go into a quiet place and pay close attention because what you're about to learn today is not only a total breakthrough in health, wellness, longevity, but it's a breakthrough in science about all of these areas, and it starts with the fact that we are affected by temperature, that our biochemistry changes where the temperature changes at a hypothalamic level. The hypothalamus has not really been a main focus in science. Yes, there are scientists that study it, but it has not been the preoccupation of people in health, wellness, longevity, The man who's with us today is a neurosurgeon. He is turning the tables on everything we think we know about diet, health, and wellness, fat loss, diabetes, all the different diseases which he attributes to being Neolithic diseases caused by something that we have no understanding about and in which almost all of the remedies that we're taking are off track. Welcome, Jack Cruz, to It's Rainmaking Time. Good afternoon. 
Hey, how are you? I'm excited to talk to you about this game changer. When I first went to your website, jackcruise.com, a few months ago and read the massive amounts of research and information and expertise that you have and found out that you weighed 357 pounds or now at 200 pounds, but your pathway and what you discovered to get there and what this means for the world and for science I really think, even though the Nobel Prize now can be given to anybody, whether you've earned anything or not, I really think this is going to be Nobel Prize worthy. And I'm so excited to talk to you about it today. Well, I don't know if it's, uh, if it's going to be that worthy, but the one thing that I can say with uh, 100% certainty is that it can actually change your life from the point of time where you start to think about this and experimented with yourself, and then uh, you actually see how it goes. I mean, I, I had this epiphany six and a half to seven years ago, and quite frankly, I couldn't tell anybody about it uh, because I was afraid they would think that I was kind of out my mind because it was so different, you know, than anything I learned in medical school, anything in residency, anything in neurosurgery training. And, you know, where I had the epiphany was probably even more ironic, it actually happened at the foot of Michelangelo's David. And that's kind of where I put it all together. And um, basically, I went home and told my family the night before Thanksgiving in 2007 that uh, at the time I was six foot two, 357. And uh, I told my family after we had this massive spread, I said, this is my last supper. After this, I said, um, one year from now, I'll be in front of you in a Speedo bathing suit. And they all laughed at me. Uh, the only person that didn't laugh was my wife. And uh, my wife kind of knew something was going on because I had been going to the medical school library. I've been pulling articles, kind of like I used to do in med school and, and in residency. And she had never seen me really go this pedal to the metal, you know, since I was in my training. And... Um, Long story short, uh, three months I lost 77 pounds, and 11 months I lost 133 pounds. Um, and then the remainder of the weight came off probably with three or four months after that for a total uh, weight loss of about 157 pounds. After I did that, you know, a lot of people in my practice, people I worked with, my patients, you know, my friends, they were kind of like, well, what did you do? You know, that was the, the big line in the hospital. And I went around telling everybody, I said, look, if I really told you what I did, you probably wouldn't believe me. And um, I kept that under my hat until I could run some tests on myself and actually on uh, several people in my family who decided they wanted to do what I found And uh, I when I had enough data out there. And I did not want to put it in a, a journal form because one of the things that I found in my research is that... Uh, there was an article written in the, uh, the Atlantic magazine, I believe it was in 2008, uh, but I'm not sure about that, written by a John, Dr. John Ionides. The article basically said that he re tried to reproduce several of the major randomized control clinical trials, you know, that m most modern medicine's based on, and he couldn't do it, and he believed that most of the trials data that was out there was completely false. And that had a huge impact on me because most of the decisions made in healthcare today are, are billed as being done, you know, um, uh, <laughs> using this research uh, as its main pillar 
for experimental designs and, and coming up with new treatments. And, and I thought to myself, if, if that's the way this is going to go, what happens if the original thought is flawed? And one of the things that he uh, talked about in there, he really started talking about a lot of the cholesterol uh, data. And with some of the things that I had found through my own research, I started to realize right off the bat that there was huge mismatches in what we believe to be true and what really was true. And this is part of the reason why so many people who are obese, overweight, or just say sick, don't get better. It's also the reason why we see, you know, articles out there telling us that saturated fat is bad for us, and then several articles will say saturated fat's good for us. So I started to become a big-time skeptic, and then I started thinking about, well, why, how could we have two articles saying exactly the opposite things, looking at the exact same kind of principles? And then it dawned on me, possibly, could there be two separate different types of biochemistry that are out there? And I just held that thought in my head, and what made everything click was when I was standing at, you know, the foot of Michelangelo's David, and I looked up at perfection, and I looked down at me, and I said, what's the difference between perfection and me? And it dawned on me. It was the time he lived in were completely different. He lived 500 years ago, you know, in Michelangelo's head, and the food uh, complex was completely different then. Everything back then was, you know, based on what people grew. There was no Monsantos. There was no Conagras. There was no you know, politics and food as there is today. In fact, most of the food back then was food. Today, the food is mostly chemicals. And it got me thinking about circadian biology. And I said, you know, the other thing is they didn't have lights at night. They didn't have, you know, iPads and iPods and video games. And they didn't sleep, you know, the way we slept. Their life was a lot different. They didn't have a grid or, or no, all they this? Had, yeah. They had nothing. I mean, right. they had fairly rudimentary things. And then I took the thought experiment even further back from Michelangelo. I started going back in history. And something else dawned on me, that we learned in, in science probably in the last 10 years. When I was going through medical school, we always thought that genetic determination, meaning the stuff that came from Watson and Crick and DNA in 1950s, was kind of the be-all, end-all of medicine. In fact, everybody who's probably listened to this has probably heard a physician say, oh, when they don't know something, they usually say, oh, well, it's genetic. And that's kind of the out card for medicine now. But what we found in the last 10 years that genetic determinism really doesn't matter that much. Our genes are kind of set. And I, I always tell my kids this. I said, you know, chimpanzees and humans share 99.8% of the, of the same DNA, but a chimp and a human are radically different. Why is that? And what we found in science is that the science of epigenetics is vitally important. In fact, it's more important than what... Our, our genome shows and what controls epigenetics is totally the environment. And when you start looking at our environment, uh, and I'm not talking about the environment like Greenpeace would talk about. I'm actually talking about circadian biology. I'm talking about light cycles, temperature cycles. I'm talking about barometric pressure. I mean, things that all biology have to navigate. And the way I, I like to think about things these days is basically biology, evolution, science, takes the chaos of the world and makes sense of it. 
Uh, and that's exactly what our bodies do. And it does it by using the things that are knowns. The knowns that have been knowns in our, our lives, you know, from the beginning of life is the light cycle and temperature cycle and, and pressure cycles. And that's kind of how it all starts and things go from there. So I started to really look at our nearest ancestors. I started to look at our deeper ancestors. I started to look at kind of where we came from and trying to look at this problem from a 30,000 foot view and not, you know, three feet in front of me. And it dawned on me that, um, that circadian biology is a big deal. Well, something else happened kind of at the same time that kind of put me on this path. I was in a spine meeting in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I believe it was around 2007. And I stood up to give a talk. And just from standing up, I tore my knee meniscus. And I couldn't believe that I did it just by standing up. Um, there was a researcher who was married to one of the docs who's a good friend of mine who worked for a biotechnology company. And she said to me, she goes, I know exactly why this happened to you. And she said, I'm going to send you a book and six papers. And she did. And I read, she specifically gave me instructions, read the book. And the book, the name of the book was The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari and by Robin Sharma. And then the six papers were all about um, hormones and cytokines. And she told me, after you read the book and you read these papers, she goes, I think you're going to understand where this is all headed. You know, because she knew a little bit about my history and how I grew up and how I was pretty deep into science. Well, I read the book and something crazy happened even before I got to the papers. Uh, I started thinking about the whole story of, uh, of, of the book, and it was basically, you know, uh, a fable. It wasn't a true story. It was about a lawyer that had a heart attack and basically quit his job went up to the top of the Himalayan mountains and pretty much remade himself and came back three years later looking 25 years younger and really skinny. And I thought to myself, is this possible biologically? Could this actually really happen? So I went back to the library and started pulling all the articles out, and I read the six articles she gave me, and interestingly enough, they were all tied to the hormone named leptin. They were all tied to cytokines, which control inflammation in our body. Well... Given what I told you before about circadian biology and this, the link between leptin and cytokines was made very, very quickly in the library. And this was a link that 20 years of my training, 25 years of my training before, really never made. And as hard as that is to believe, it's true. Uh, we just don't learn about that stuff in, in training and residency. And part of it's because leptin was just discovered in '94. And the link between cytokines, to be quite honest with you, is, is being found as we speak. How this ties to, you know, more recent, you know, big news, like, you know, Nobel Prize in 2009 was given to uh, Elizabeth Blackburn at UCSF in California on telomere biology. Well, guess what? This stuff links directly to that as well. And people aren't talking about that either. But see, I started making all these connections. And I guess the best way to look at a guy like me is I guess I haven't really discovered really anything except I've put a lot of things together in biology that everybody knows, but nobody knew how they were connected. And at the foot of this statue, I had this come to Jesus moment where I realized immediately the main difference between Michelangelo's David and me is 
it was tied to leptin, circadian biology, and inflammation. And I realized in the book that I had read from Robin Sharma that it was all tied to cold and inflammation. And I realized there had to be a pathway in the brain that proved this. So I went on another bender and started learning about Sherpas who lived on the top of Mount Everest, started learning about NASA astronauts, because NASA actually knew that this stuff happened. Back in 1969, when the first man went to the moon, it was Neil Armstrong. One of the things that NASA found with that crew when they came back is they ate 50% less food, and they all lost more than 25 pounds each, and they couldn't explain why. And this consistently happened with all the manned space missions. So when it kept happening into the early 70s, NASA decided to dispatch people up to look for humans on our planet that actually could do the same thing. And that's when they ran into the Sherpas, and they found out that the Sherpas could do some pretty amazing things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The Sherpas are known as, you know, a, a people that live on the top of the world. Basically, if you know anything about geology and evolutionary biology, India used to be a separate continent. It basically hit into the bottom of Asia and it's been pushing into Asia for millions of years. And basically, the uh, tops of the Himalayan mountains used to be the bottom of a deep ocean. And as it's gone to the sky, barometric pressure has decreased and temperatures decreased. So the Sherpas are the longest living humans in a cold environment on this planet, even, even um, more so than the Inuit Eskimos. And the, the reason that that NASA couldn't use the Inuit Eskimos is because the Inuit Eskimos diet was polluted by modern life in the 1950s where they began to eat a standard American diet like most Americans do, and they got away from their ancestral diet. But what made the Sherpas very, very, very interesting to NASA is they had resting metabolic rates that were 300 to 500% of the people they were helped climbing up to the top of the mountain. So, for example, if you went to uh, Mount Everest, it would take you three weeks from base camp to adapt to the environment there. It takes a Sherpa three to four days. Not only that, a Sherpa can put 100 pounds on his back and go up to the top of the mountain without any problems. You would probably die doing that. So they had some amazing abilities. Um, the, the interesting uh, difference between them and the Inuits, the Inuits see had a big ocean around them, uh, and their ancestral diet was strongly based around the sea. Well, if you know anything about the Himalayan mountains, there's no sea around them because, as I mentioned, India crashed in to the bottom of Asia. This didn't, this didn't uh, get past me at all. I realized it immediately that the Inuits still had a key to this puzzle that the Sherpas couldn't have, but the Sherpas were the best cold-adapted people to study. So I kept looking at them, and there was, there's been some other NASA um, researchers like Ray Cronice that's also uh, looked into the, these areas and talked about it. And it was clear that there was a link between cold and weight loss. But no one really knew kind of how it all worked. Then I started to read about a lot of uh, eutherian mammals in the wild uh, and about their biology and about how things were different for them. And it, I found out some very interesting stuff that mammalian biology basically has two different uh, pathways. And this is not known, uh, or I should say it's not well-known for the eutherian mammals that we are, but it's pretty well known in the animal kingdom by uh, veterinarians and also by uh, um, 
uh, zookeepers. So I actually went down to the zoo and started talking to zookeepers about how the animals change over the year. And I started to find out just about in every animal that's in the zoo, they go through tremendous changes, you know, biochemically as the year goes by, and most of them are tied to the diet. These actually are built in, they happen. So I realized there had to be a pathway in the brain that did this. Um, so I opened up my neurosurgery books, and it didn't take me very long. I found a pathway in the, in the hypothalamus of the brain that was clearly there, but there was no way in and there was no way out of this pathway. And that made no sense to me at all. And I struggled probably for 18 months to figure out the pathway in and the pathway out. And I read a lot about it. And finally, I found it. And it turned out it had to do with the eye and the supracosmetic nucleus. And that's another way that all mammals perceive, you know, their environment. Um, and I found out that our nucleus, we've believed in humans, only worked on the light cycle, but it actually also works on temperature. So then I went back and started looking at all the mammals, you know, that are on our planet now to see that they also function the same way. Not only did I find out they function the same way, I found out there was a completely separate cold system wired into our peripheral nervous system and our central nervous system, and that mammals, other than us, tend to use it all the time. And, and you know, there was, there's obvious examples of it. Um, and I can give you an obvious example right now. Um, I tell all my patients this because it makes the point. What's the difference between, you know, us and a polar bear right now? Well, the main, the main thing that we have in common is that we're both mammals. And we're eutherium mammals, meaning that we use placentas. But when the polar bear um, gets heavy, you know, through the summer and the fall because he's eating, you know, his circadian diet, he gets sluggish and he starts to go underground and hibernate. And polar bears aren't true hibernators, but they still go uh, underground and they den, especially the pregnant females. But here's the crazy part. When they come out of the, under their den in three or four months, they're shredded of fat and they have the biggest muscles they have all year. So I asked my patients, just like I'd ask you, well, tell me, when did they have time to exercise? They were under the ground sleeping. And it, when you start to think about that, you start going, well, yeah, they didn't exercise. So how did they lose this weight? And the re reason they lost the weight is because the cold biochemistry dictates it destroys leptin levels. Not only does it destroy leptin levels, it does something actually and this is the big missing piece of the puzzle for humans, it actually gets rid of our fat cells. The only way modern humans think we can get rid of fat cells is through the plastic surgeon. That's not true. And that's why many people who are type 2 diabetics, you know, you always hear from my profession, hey, all you have to do is lose weight. Well, that's not true because there's plenty of type 2 diabetics out there or even type 1 diabetics or type 1.5 diabetics they lose weight and their diabetes and their fasting blood sugars are still out of whack and they still have insulin resistance. Why is that? All they did was lose the fat in their fat cell. They did not get rid, meaning apoptosis, of the, that fat cell. And see, biology requires us to absolutely get rid of our fat cells on a seasonal basis in order to reverse our insulin resistance. Well, let's fast forward to us different eutherium mammal. We control our own environment, unlike the polar bear. We also don't have the need to hibernate anymore because our brain grew so fast we figured out ways around that too. But here's the crazy thing. The cold system is still wired into us. So 
I came up with three thought experiments when I realized this. I said, I realized that I could lose weight if I retooled my hypothalamus and fed it based on circadian biology, and I used the cold to induce cold thermogenesis to turn my white fat into brown fat and eventually get rid of my own fat cells. And I did so much work on this that I convinced myself that I could lose the weight really, really fast. So I went, came up with something called the leptin prescription reset, and I came up with something called the cold thermogenesis protocol. And on November, I guess it was 27, 28, 2007, I applied this to myself. And three months later, I lost 77 pounds, and 11 months later, 133. Needless to say, my wife's mouth was wide open. The person I had the biggest effect on was my son. Uh, my son was at the time in, in a private school, uh, in high school, and when he came home to see me in May of that year, because he hadn't seen me in, while he was in school, he was floored. And all he said to me is, Dad, he goes, whatever you did, he goes, I want to do it. And I told him, we were actually on vacation in Walt Disney World, and I said, look, Connor, I ruined you as a child. I fed you McDonald's. I fed you Walmart food. I fed you everything that I shouldn't feed you. And at the time, he was 15 years old, 257 pounds. And I said, if you're serious about this, I'll, I'll fix you. So I sat him down for four hours and told him exactly what he was going to have to do. At the same time, ironically, my nephew was also on this trip with us, and he was 21 years old, 268 pounds at five foot eleven. They both decided that day they were going to change. My son, in six weeks, did what I told him to do, and he went back to school 60 pounds lighter six weeks later. And you know that that, for most of us, sounds virtually impossible, unless you're on HCG, to lose 10 pounds a week like that of fat. And the other thing, Dr. Cruz, I want to say to you is that a lot of people say that people's fat cells are, quote, meant to be there just in case you don't have food. You know that whole belief? Right. It's totally wrong. You're designed to uh, make fat to survive. But here's the key thing. When your fat cells multiply and divide, you're not designed to have millions and billions and trillions and trillions and just keep getting fatter and fatter and fatter because what we now know is the cell membrane that controls those fat cells actually is what drives a lot of the insulin resistance. And See, that's the missing part of the modern-day healthcare story um, that people don't realize. And that's part of the reason why people on my website, you know, when I put the cold thermogenesis protocol out, I, I made a very, very bold statement early in my cold thermogenesis series that I told them that you want to reverse type 2 diabetes, you have to use the cold. The cold is the antidote. And, you know, a lot of people thought, had a big problem with that. And guess what we found since I started putting this information out? I mean, that blog post was written on February 11th, 2012. So we're not, today is, we're talking two months ago. If you go read the blog comments, what people who have diabetes have found in two months, it's nothing short of remarkable. I've got people who've been diabetic for 20 years, say so they've never had a fasting blood sugar below 110, and they're now in the 70s. This is with two months worth of CT, and that's it. So I want to go back, and I really want to bring in the listeners a little bit into the frame of reference of this. The leptin reset has to do with eating 30 minutes upon waking. 50 to 70 grams of protein, preferably, with some fat, correct? Yes. That's the first part. 
You also said dinner before 7 p.m. and when it becomes dark, you're going to bed. Is that true? Well, I wouldn't say that is actually true. Okay. Um, For me, last night it was true, but I would say that when the sun sets, you need to make sure the artificial light in your house also sets. That's the main point of that point. Do you light a candle? Well, I I do a lot of different things. Yes. I talk about that on my site, but I I had custom-made Oakley uh, goggles made. I don't watch, uh, I very rarely watch TV anymore, but I will tell you in the beginning, I did watch TV, you know, when I started all this, but I always made sure I had the, the goggles on. There's no lights on in my house. In the fall and wintertime, I light a fire every single night. I have a, a real fireplace in my house, so I use that. Uh, when I read at nighttime, uh, if I uh, use my computers, I use Flux, which is, uh, you know, a computer program that knocks the, the light down. And I still wear my goggles when I do that. Or if I read a book, I wear a baseball hat and I'll have a red or a blue light on the rim of the cap that a hunter would use so that it's not a bright light. And the reason I do that is because I do not want to set off my cortisol to the light. Because what people don't realize, when the sun rises normally, our cortisol level rises. So every time you open your iPhone or your iPad in the middle of the night or when it's dark, you just screwed up your circadian rhythm for cortisol. Well, guess what? That's probably the number one cause of heart disease in the world. And people don't know this. And you want another perfect example of that? Sure. Take a look at Steve Jobs. He did everything wrong. He ate the wrong diet. He ate a vegetarian diet. And he used technology all hours of night. What happened to him? He died of cancer at 56. So the second leap that I made in my CT series, I also said not only is diabetes curable by this, but I don't believe cancer is a disease anymore. I believe cancer is is caused by circadian mismatches that are basically uh, accounted for by our telomeres in our cells in our body. And that's where I'm tying the work into the work of uh, Elizabeth Blackburn. And it sounds very radical when you hear it, but when I explain it all to you and you sit down and you start to think about it, you start to realize why some of the cancer data makes absolutely no sense. I've said this to so many people. We've spent billions of dollars on cancer, and we haven't even made a dent in most of them. Why? Because the way we're looking at the problem, our perspective, is completely wrong. We should not try to you know, cure cancer after a cell's been transformed. We should never let the cell become transformed to begin with. Are you saying, in a sense, cold thermogenesis plus the protocol that you've put together is like a key in the prevention part? Yeah, I think it's a huge key. In fact, I'll give you a a, a perfect example right now, and you can answer this for me. When you watch TV shows, uh, when people are getting uh, a kidney transplant or heart transplant, do they put the heart in ice or in charcoal? You know, I don't know. They put it in ice to save I figured it. they would put it in ice, but I don't know for a fact what they do. That's what they do. So people know that the cold preserves things. When you go to the store, you don't buy steaks in, in the charcoal aisle. You buy it in the frozen food section, don't you? Yes. Because cold preserves things. Well, guess what? It does the same thing with biology. In fact, in the last two months, they just found a cold water fish in Antarctica that they found to be 10,000 years old. Now, tell me if that seems possible based on what you knew yesterday. It doesn't. But it's possible because guess what? That animal is living on our planet, and it's been studied. So what our job is 
as modern humans is to take the data that we know to be true. In other words, the, the stuff that is present, and we need to explain it. We need to, we need to come up with a new framework. Our problem right now in medicine, our problem in our country, our problem everywhere is that we are socialized to believe many, many things that put us at risk. Uh, for a, probably the best example of that is, you know, Dr. Oz on TV. You know, he'll tell people saturated fat is bad, it's horrible, and this and that. Yet, we can go to the South Pacific and find a bunch of hunter-gatherers who've been eating coconuts for thousands of years who do better than the people in our own country. I mean, if, if we want to really take a look at what my profession has professed in terms of the cholesterol story, let, let's look at this this bare fact. This is a naked truth that somebody's got to you know answer for. We've had people on a high uh, fat, I should say, a high carbohydrate, low fat diet for 50 years. We put them on statins, and what's the number one cause of death in men and women today in the United States? Heart disease. So let me ask you a question: If we were right. How come we're not seeing it in the bottom line? It's interesting. I just did a show on cholesterol and fat with a doctor from Sweden. And this with paleo and all the things that you're putting together is so exciting. You say that evolution says in the biology that it's impossible to find carbs in cold environments. Mm -hmm. Explain that further. Well, that's, a, that's a simple one. Uh, I'll, I'll give you another thought experiment for that one. Uh, I'd ask all your listeners and you too, when I tell you this, to close your eyes. Uh, when I tell you what I'm going to say, around uh, January 1st, what kind of ads do you see in the newspapers around your house? You see stuff for, for January resolutions, you know, January 1st, you know, weights, you know, workout equipment, things like that. Join a agree? gym. Yeah, join a gym. Okay. And the reason for that is because modern companies want to take advantage of us because they know that's the time of the year that humans tend to gain weight because we eat at, you know, all the holidays, and we start off usually around Halloween and work our way through Thanksgiving, and that's a pretty common thing. And most, I think most Americans would, and probably most people in the world would agree that what I just said there is not very controversial, correct? Right. Okay, change the channel in your head, close your eyes. You're watching the Discovery Channel now on TV, and you're seeing a mountain lion, and he's in Yellowstone Park. When is he the leanest during the year? Oh. In the wintertime. Exactly opposite when you are. Why is that? Why are humans somehow different than wild animals? Well, here's the answer. Humans are the only mammals on this planet that can control their environment. So if you're in Calgary, Canada on December 31st, you can eat a banana. Why can you? Because we have figured out how to import one from Chile. Okay. Yeah. Guess what biology says? Guess what our telomeres tell us? Don't do it's it. It's physically impossible <laughs> to eat a banana on December 31st. And guess what? When you do, you're paying a biologic toll. The problem is you're not ambiently aware of that toll as you eat that banana. But guess who? Guess where it gets taken out of? And your telomeres. Your telomere shortens. And when you keep making these biologic mismatches chronically over time, you keep opening your iPad at night, you keep staying out and partying and not sleeping well. You keep eating, you know, carbohydrates from McDonald's and Walmart at all hours of the night every single month because the people on the TV say it's good or Kellogg's tells you that cashew cereal is really healthy or a dietitian or nutritionist tell you that whole grains are healthy. 
guess what? You pay the price. And not only that, my theory also predicts that when you continue to do this generation by generation, the disease processes that we normally see in 70 and 80-year-old people will start to show up in teenagers. And guess what? It's already happening. Here it is. And you know what? No one has an explanation for it probably until I came along. And I do. And the reason for it is because our epigenetics have been sped up by something in evolution. And I haven't released that part yet. It's going to be in my book later this year. Um, I'm actually doing a webinar on it actually next month on my website for my members. But I call it Factor X. And I will tell you, as part of my theory, when I was sitting at that base of Michelangelo statue, I realized that something had to be driving this whole process that we're talking about. And I realized that it was the speed of epigenetics. And as I told you before, just in the last 10 years, we started to realize as scientists and clinicians how important epigenetics are. Well, the only way a cell can tell about how the environment is is through its cell membrane. So cell membrane chemistry has now become one of the hottest areas in research. It's also become the hottest area that I'm reading about because it's what dictates mammalian biochemistry. And I recently on the blog, I started, you know, posting things about marmots, which are, you know, eutherian primates. They're, they're actually not too far removed from us about how they change their cell membranes as the seasons change. And the ironic thing is these are primates that actually live closer to the equator. You know, the argument that I gave you or the thought experiment I gave you early when you closed your eyes was one of uh, an animal that was further from the equator. But guess what? This actually happens at the equator. And if you don't believe me, the next time you watch that Discovery Channel, you know, there's a dry season and a rainy season at the equator too. That means that there's circadian cycles there too. There's times there's fruit available and there's times there's not. If you don't believe me, just turn the channel on and see when the, the wildebeest have to go drink water and who gets them, the crocodiles. I want to ask you something about the hypothalamus because it seems to be like where the action is and where this ancient information that's hardwired in us is. You say that it's the cold switch of the ancient pathway. Well, I, I wouldn't say the hypothalamus is. I would tell you that the switch that allows us into this pathway is in the eye. Okay. And that's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And it, what, what, what happens there, we've known as modern humans, modern doctors, that the supracosmatic nucleus controls circadian biology. We've known that. But what we didn't know until very recently is that when we have eye diseases, we age faster. That's an actual known fact now uh, of the last three years. And I knew that, and I couldn't figure out kind of why in one part. And then I started to find out these things about the supercosmatic nucleus actually will not use light when the temperature goes really low. And actually, when that happens, that allows us to get in to this ancient pathway that's in our hypothalamus. And we will never use this ancient pathway if we don't have the switch to get us in. Well, this goes to my other point to you. If you don't use temperature to let you in, Modern humans don't let us use temperature. We wear clothes. We, we're not like the polar bear, right? We also have heated seats in our Escalade, so we don't feast it there. We also live in heated houses. We don't live in caves. We don't have to navigate around the planet like the animals do. So guess what? 
modern humans have never faced a winter, ever. In fact, the more we've gone on in our own biology from, say, let's just say from 5,000 B.C. to now, we, we never face a winter. In fact, we come out with clever ways not to face the cold. Well, guess what? That's to our detriment. And what I'm saying is when you start to face the cold, amazing things start changing in your biology. It's actually the opposite of what we were told as young children. You know, that exactly cold, right. you know, I'm being sure in if the... you've got kids, yeah. you probably told your kids when it was cold, wear a hat, wear a scarf, you're going to get sick, and this and that. And it's exactly the opposite. You know, in fact, your kids knew something that you probably didn't know. When kids go outside, they have higher rates of brown fat in their body. That means they're more effective at actually handling the cold than you are. And they don't need uh, protection from the cold. Uh, more ironic thing is most kids, when they grow up, they don't like vegetables. Well, that's built in too. They want to eat protein and fat, which is also part of the pathway. You know, and, and I, I came into the paleo community not because I was a big believer in the Paleolithic diet, I came in because I found this ancient pathway first, and then I realized that the diet that this pathway calls for is an ancient or ancestral Paleolithic diet. And that's, a, that's basically how all mammals are designed to eat. But it, they're designed to work in their environment. We are the first mammals that have come along that completely control our environment. And that, the reason for that is because our brains grew at exponential rates compared to our, our nearest relatives. And the reason for that is because our epigenetics have been sped up from this, from this big event that I, I talk about as Factor X. Now, you say on your blog that calories in, calories out makes no biological sense. Explain no, that to the audience. I know it's on your site, but explain it. Well, it's very simple. I did a, a podcast a while back. And I gave a simple example, a third grade example. I guess I'm going to use it here again because I think it works. If you were to eat 2,000 uh, calories, let's say, of uh, liverwurst every day and 2,000 calories of Twinkies every day, do you think after a year that you'd have the same body composition? No. All right. Well, remember, it's calorie the same, but you, were, you picked up on it right away, and you wouldn't. And the reason why is because the, the, the electrons from those foods – cause different hormonal switches to go off on us. But here's the bigger issue with calories. Um, and I, I, use, I, I usually use Michael Phelps here as a good example of this because everybody watched him in the Olympics in 2008 when he was at Beijing. And when he was up on the podium with Bob Costas, you know, people saw him in a Speedo. He looked amazing. You know, and he was telling people he was eating between eight and 12,000 calories a day. And people are like looking at him going, are you kidding me? How, how could you do that? And, you know, this is where Ray Kernis got real famous. He actually did some of the homework on the science behind how he was able to do that. And the part of the story that nobody knew is that Michael Phelps swam and trained in a pool that was 50 degrees of water. Well, guess what happens when you train in 50-degree water? You burn calories as free heat. Well, guess what? We have the ability as modern humans, in fact, every mammal has this ability, we have a, a cell in our fat called brown fat. We, it goes by the initials BAT, brown adipose tissue. Brown adipose tissue can take calories and burn them as free heat, meaning we never make any energy, no ATP. That means no uh, oxidation occurs in our cells. It's, it's just burned as free heat. 
Well, if you can burn a calorie as free heat and it doesn't count against you, right there you can prove that a calorie isn't a calorie. What matters most is are you efficient at burning your calories off? What I'm telling the world is that people who use cold thermogenesis can eat way more. If you saw how much I eat, you'd probably die. I eat more <laughs> now as a 200-pound male than I did when I was a 357-pound person. And my wife can back that up. Uh, in fact, I just came back from Paleo FX and in Austin, Texas, and I gave a whole bunch of speeches, and I sat down and had dinner with a doctor named Lisa Stein, and she could not believe how much grass-fed lamb I ate at a Brazilian barbecue place. And she's like, it's just unbelievable. And I was like, well, you know what? Tonight, when I go back to the hotel, I'll be packed in ice for probably two or three hours. I want you to explain what leptin is, and then I want you to talk about what the protocol is, because people are like, what? what is he referring to? Well, leptin is the master hormone in the body. It actually controls all energy metabolism in the body. Uh, and it's a hormone that, from an evolutionary standpoint, basically evolved from a cytokine called IL-6. And IL-6 generally is a bad actor in our body. It usually leads to inflammation. But what leptin is, it's actually in our fat cells. Every fat cell in our body has leptin. It ha there's other hormones that are present, adiponectin and resistin, but we're not going to get into those now because it will just complicate the issue. But the fatter one is, the more leptin you have. And just like, you know, the story with diabetes, if you have more diabetes or you have more sugar, your blood sugar is high, it means your insulin level is high, and you become insulin resistant. Well, fat people tend to become leptin-resistant. One of the interesting things that we found since 1994 is we used to believe the diabetes story was all about insulin. What we're starting to realize that the diabetes story is really not about insulin at all. It's about leptin resistance. And anytime your leptin levels are very, very high, it means that the inflammation in your body is extremely high. Can people test for their leptin levels? Yeah, you can, and uh, some doctors do do it. There's a, a pretty prominent physician in Denver, Colorado named Ron Rosedale who's made a career doing that and also uh, wrote a diet book about it. I personally don't do it. Uh, I think it's a waste of time. Uh, instead, what I do, I make it, uh, when I do biohacks on people, I make it very simple. I go straight for the inflammation source. And most people, you can tell if they're leptin-resistant if you have a mirror and you take your clothes off. It's pretty obvious. <laughs> And that's what I call the mirror test. Most people know that. But, you know, the, for people who are fit and want to know if they're leptin resistant, usually it requires blood testing. Uh, leptin levels can be drawn. Generally, people that have a leptin level over 10 usually are leptin resistant. Uh, I go through a lot of this stuff on my site in excruciating detail that will hurt your head. But if you're really interested in learning about it, I would say come on my site and read that stuff, and I'll explain it to you. I also have a really good habit. If you have any questions at all, leave them there, and I answer every single question on my blog. I want to go back to the actual protocol. Now, I understand you spoke with black ops or special ops and special forces that also contributed insight into the protocol. Is that correct? Along yes, with I, NASA's I actually, input. I have talked to lots of people about this. Yes. Because one of the things I found out... Um, I told you that my nephew is, is in the Navy and he's, in, he's getting ready to become a special ops officer. Um, I found out after talking with some of the people he's worked with um, 
that the number one reason Navy SEALs are knocked out of the program is because they can't handle the cold. And I started to find out kind of how they train these kids to become cold adapted, and there really was no training. The training that they used was pretty rudimentary, and it wasn't based on the biology that we had. And that's part of the reason I came up with my cold thermogenesis protocol. And it took me several years to kind of get it right, but it's based on kind of how our central and peripheral nervous system is built. And everybody who's basically used this since I've put it out there have started to realize it only takes, I I don't care what kind of shape you're in, about two weeks for a person to become cold adapted. You can go from right now not being able to tolerate say water that's 50 degrees with ice cubes in it, within two weeks, I can guarantee I can change that if you follow my protocol. And when they started to do these things, they started to notice there's a lot of changes. And I know special ops. In fact, I met a gentleman at Paleo FX who is in special ops who I talked to. In fact, I changed my opening speech because of this guy um, down there. His name's Randy Brummett. And he uh, has a lot of connections to special ops in the military. And we're going to be talking, you know, to them in the future about maybe trying to change our elite soldiers, you know, activities in this area. Because God, this is a total game changer. My God, this could speed up everything. But I mean, the, the thing is, I don't want this just to be used for elite athletes or, you know, elite humans. I, the people that can benefit the most from this are the 60 million diabetics and the people that have cancer in our country. Remember, after all, I am a surgeon. You know, I'm, I'm paid to take care of sick people. Uh, I really eventually want to put myself out of business so that I can take care of well people and keep them well, you know, so they don't have to rely on the system that's currently built because the system that's currently built is not designed to keep you healthy. It's designed just to take care of you when you're sick. Can you talk That's why about it's so damn expensive? Can you talk about the protocol, the first part of the protocol becoming cold adapted? People yeah. will go to your site and read it, but hearing it from you is very different. Yeah, I, so bring the, us in. The bring us first in. way to start is what I'd say it's very cheap as long as you have water in your house. Most people tap water is between fifty and fifty five degrees. So you fill up your sink and you start dunking your face in the water. And the reason that you want to use your face is Every mammal on this planet has something called a mammalian dive reflex. And if you don't believe that humans have it, again, go back and turn on the Discovery Channel and see that women who deliver their baby in a pool of water, the child comes out and he never drowns. And the reason for that is because we have a dive reflex. And that dive reflex goes all the way back in evolutionary times to when our deep, deep ancestors were all born in the water. And it's still present in us. So you, can, you may not want to believe this, that's fine, but you know that what I just told you is true because you've seen it. Well, I use the same part uh, when I cold adapt people. I basically tell them, I don't want you to put your body in the cold water right away. What I want you to do is just put your face in it. And this is where neurobiology gets in, but basically what innervates our face is a cranial nerve called the trigeminal nerve. That nerve feeds back very, very close to the 10th cranial nerve, which is called the vagus nerve that innervates our gut. And basically what happens when you cold adapt someone's face, you are basically telling the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system that something in our environment 
has radically changed, and we need to prepare for it. Well, guess what happens? And this is on a biochemical level now. That starts immediately messenger RNA in our cells upregulating a protein in our hypothalamus called uncoupling protein 1. That happens within three or four hours of your training of doing this. That's how fast this works. How long is your face in the water and how many times are you? Well, I I usually tell people you want to get to the point where you keep your face in that 50-degree water until you can take your next breath. Some people, you know, can't breathe that good. Some people can. But you want to practice that until it becomes very, very easy. But like how many times? Let's say I keep my face under there for a minute. Everybody's different. I mean, I will tell you with me, it only took me two or three times. Um, but you have to remember my adaption was pretty different than most other people because I went pedal to the metal. Uh, none of this, I I didn't know any of this when I started. I I basically (laughs) learned this by trial and error on me and on my family. Now the protocol that I released this year has been tested on lots of people. So I know it's safe and it's not going to hurt anyone. Um, but basically you do the face dunks until you become very comfortable with it. And when you're able to keep your face completely submerged in the water until your next breath, then you can move on to the next step, which is generally getting into a cold shower. Now, I'm not a big fan of showers. I'm going to be honest with you. I went straight to the ice-cold water. And the reason why is when cold water goes all over your body, if you've ever done a cold shower, you know that it's, it's kind of tough to tolerate that water dripping down your body. But the ironic thing for me is when I got in a, a tub of cold water, I found it actually to be pretty easy after you get over the first, I'd say probably five to 10 seconds of shock. (laughs) And then when you get in the water, people, I I, I don't almost don't want to tell people what they're going to feel. I want them to go read what other people have put on my blog because everybody, when they think of this in their mind, it's like a, it's a mental speed bump. They're afraid to do it. Then when you do it, you're like, this is incredible. One of the first things people all come back and say is they start noticing their sleep improves tremendously. Remember the story I gave you earlier about the polar bear? Yeah. What's he do when he gets big muscles and shred his fat? He sleeps, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, guess what? That tells you the program is still based in us. Cold induces sleep. And guess what? why it does that? It completely destroys your leptin level. It's the fastest way to drive leptin to the ground. And guess what else it does? That, that cytokine I told you about before that leptin's related to it called IL-6. Yeah. Cold also destroys IL-6. So if you look at leptin and IL-6 like gasoline or a fire in your house, what I'm basically telling you is that cold is a fire out in your house. So when the fire's out in your house, do you think you're going to get diabetes? Do you think you're going to get cancer? Do you think you're going to get heart disease? You're not. And can you reverse this stuff? I can't say with definitive proof yet that you can because I need people to do this, but I can tell you what I can tell you with 100% certainty, obesity is an inflammatory brain condition. I am proof positive that it worked in me, my son is, my nephew is, and thousands of people that have used my protocol on my blog have posted their results too. So I would tell you, go look at those. I just recently did a TED Talk in Nashville on the 31st of of March and showed people my initial results, my own, my son's, and my nephew's. 
Then I showed them what I'm doing in my clinic for my patients. And that's when people were shocked. When they started to see how I was able to do major spinal surgery in a person using cold without having to use pain medicine, people started to pay attention. How I was able to take a tumor out of someone's, you know, plexus of nerves without using any anesthesia, it started to catch people's attention. Because what I'm, the implications of what I'm telling people are massive. They're not, they're not minuscule. I'm talking about every single disease we face as humans. If we start to embrace the cold and we start to eat a paleolithic diet using circadian biology, we can, we can get back all the things that we've previously thought we lost. This is so exciting, and I also want to commend you for being willing to share so extensively on your website and do so much writing and tie so many things in without hoarding it. You know, a lot of people, when they come to these big discoveries, don't want to let loose with them, and I so appreciate that you're letting it loose. The reason for that, I'm going to be honest with you, is because people want to capture this monetarily. I look at it a little bit differently. Um, our world is destroyed by many of the modern things that we do, many of the things we embrace. I'm talking about our food. Everything is based on convenience now. You know, it's about, based on our modern life. It's based on our iPads or iPods. I have a duty as a physician to tell people that what we believe is the things that are killing us. And we need to realize this. Because if we don't, we're going, to extinct, we're going to extinct our own species. And if you don't believe me, just take a look at what's going around. Just go to Walmart or go to Walt Disney World and look. There, there's more motorized wheelchairs there than there are people walking in the stores or in the parks. It's, it's ridiculous. And, and the thing is, a physician, I have a duty to help my patients and help mankind. I can't do that. If I keep this information to myself, I want everybody out there to not believe a damn word that I said. I want you to question everything I said, but at the same time, I want you to try it for 30 to 60 days and then tell me how you feel. And I will guarantee you after two months, you will feel better than you ever did by going to the doctor and getting put on the medicines that we put you on. And now, I'm going to be very honest when I say this. I'm madder than hell how I had to figure this out. I didn't figure this out because I was a, a really smart doctor and this and that. I figured this out because I had to become a patient with a medical problem that modern medicine couldn't help. And I had to figure it out myself. That really, that really upset me, and I know I'm a smart guy, and I know there's a lot of people out there that don't have this ability. So I cannot keep what I know to myself. I have to share that with the people out there that need this help immediately. But they have to be willing to do things that are going to seem counterintuitive to them. You know, and, and you have to embrace paradox and ambiguity to understand this. And that's part of the reason why when I come and do shows and I come talk to people, I want them to understand that what I'm telling them is not very radical. It's only radical when you think about it from a modern human perspective, you know, it wasn't more than 10 or 20,000 years ago that we were living in caves and it was cold and we did eat protein and meat and we didn't go out at all hours of the night because it was not safe. 
Well, guess what? That's how our biology is designed to work, and we need to get back to it. I'm so honored that you joined us today, and I'm so excited to begin your program. (laughs) I am scared of cold, but I'm going to go for it. God help me. (laughs) Uh, It it can make a huge difference. You know, it's made a huge difference in my life. It's made a huge difference in the people that I love. You know, and it's starting to have a huge impact, you know, in my own community. I mean, I'm getting calls from doctors all the time. You know, I've I've just recently got a call this week from plastic surgeons that are using this on cancer patients now and using it, you know, for tram flaps, you know, to reconstruct breasts and uh, on on facial reconstructions. And, you know, when I hear stories like that, it kind of makes me happy because we are absolutely using this information now to help people who need the help. Because here's the ironic thing, that, that bowl of cereal that someone's eating right now, they don't realize that's what's killing them. And we need to get that information out. They need to stop eating foods that are driving their leptin levels through the roof that are causing the inflammation in their body. And then even if you do have these diseases, I want people to know that there is a way that we may be able to reverse many of the bad things that go with that. And here's the beautiful thing. You don't need a prescription. You don't need anything expensive. You need your bathtub. You need some ice cubes. You need resolve. You need, you need to think. You need to think and look in your own environment of the animals that are out there in front of your nose and say, what really is different between me and them? I mean, most humans don't even realize they are mammals until I point it out to them. And, and to me, you know, a child who's th- in third or fourth grade gets this. And the problem is the older we get, the more dogmatic we get, the worse it gets. And we need to start to realize, we need to question everything we're socialized to believe because that's what's getting us in trouble. And we need to, we need to change that. I'm so looking forward to being part of the journey with you and people across the world with cold thermogenesis for health and wellness and longevity and quality of life. Thank you so much for your time and what you're doing. It's so huge. Uh, Most people listening will not know exactly how huge it is, but I literally went through your whole website and was so excited. I called friends of mine and I said, this is the most revolutionary, exciting, mind-blowing thing I've ever seen in science yet today. This is it. Well, it's kind of like what Einstein said. And, you know, he's one of my, my, my heroes and my mentors. I always knew that the answer for me was going to be simple. And I never realized how simple. All I had to do is basically eat an ancestral diet and embrace the cold. And I was able to, you know, completely change my life and change my son's life, change my family's life. Now, now that I've proved that, I just want to share it with everybody else. Jack Cruz, thank you so much for being with us. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Jack Cruz. He's a neurosurgeon, and he is on to one of the most exciting breakthroughs in health, wellness, and longevity. You can reach him by going to jackcruz.com. Sign up to be a member, read his blog, go through the entire program, and thank you so much, and I'd love to have you on again in six months, Jack. All right, sounds good. As long as you promise me you're going to break I'm going to do it. You're going to see me on the forum. Awesome. (laughs) I'm going to write to you. (laughs) Uh, That's that's what I'm looking forward to. Thank you so much. 
All right. Take care. Bye-bye.